Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. This podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. It is neither investment, legal, nor tax advice and does not represent the opinions of the employers of the host or guest. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. Dating apps combine many controversial concepts, technology, sex, societal change, economic intrigue, and the law. We're just in the early stages of understanding how dating apps are affecting the way people interact. Our legal system is just now grappling with how to deal with bad actors in a world where accountability is scarce. To lay the groundwork on these concepts is Irina Manta. Irina is a professor of law and the founding director of the Center of Intellectual Property Law at the Maurice Dean School of Law at Hofstra University. Professor Manta's research spans legal issues involving intellectual property, torts, the internet, privacy, national security, and immigration. A graduate of Yale Law School and Yale University, she co-hosts the dating podcast, Strangers on the Internet. Welcome aboard, Irina. Thank you so much for having me. Well, this is a real treat. We have a bunch of mutual friends, but one of whom in particular put us together and said, Frage, you really ought to talk to Irina about her research into really the ramifications of dating apps and what that looks like from a legal perspective. Maybe take us through a little bit about what your work comprises right now. Well, it's a lot of different issues. I really started on the legal side with the question of what kinds of lies are people telling on dating apps? And at what point does this enter the realm of what I and others have called sexual fraud? So, for example, if somebody gives a piece of information on a dating app that is false, such as I am single when the person is actually married, and then somebody else has sexual intercourse with that person, should that be legally actionable? Because but for that lie, that individual would not have had sex with the person. And ultimately, I believe that for some types of lies, the answer to that should be yes, because the harm can be much greater in some situations than some of the more minor financial frauds that we do legally punish. So as you look at that, how do you divide the harm in terms of maybe, say, criminal versus civil money damages versus maybe rape or more criminal concepts? How do you think about that and divide that out in your framework? I think it gets tricky for multiple reasons. But what I've tried to do in my work is really to come up with pragmatic answers. So there are certain types of laws that we're just not going to get passed because the support for it is not going to exist. And so what I might prefer theoretically in my mind or what someone else might prefer might just not be something that's doable. So I tried to figure out, okay, what can we actually do? And that's why I proposed initially a framework where people would be able to go to small claims court and recover whatever the maximum amount is that the small claims court in that jurisdiction allows. And I would make it a set amount. We talk about statutory damages in that context. So somebody might only recover $5,000 or $10,000. And you might think, well, in some cases, that's not really enough. So somebody managed to string someone along for six months, waste their time. Maybe during that time, their biological clock was running. So the damage could be significant. There could be financial damage also if the individual spent money on the fraudster. But at the same time, it is something that I think is 
more realistic than having massive tort lawsuits, which is the kind of thing that has been proposed for a long time but hasn't happened. Now, the damage and the problem is much accelerated in the dating app era because a single predator could fool hundreds of people in a year. And that was really difficult to do earlier. Help me think about this a little bit. So you have sort of the guy from Three's Company who used to go down to the legal beagle, sort of a ladies man. And I'm sure there was a lot of puffery around his qualifications around this, that or the other thing. What distinguishes what you're seeing, the one on one portion of it versus maybe the digital overlay of the digital app structure? The biggest difference is definitely that of scale. So the fact that if somebody was going to a bar, the rate of success was probably not nearly as high. With dating apps, one can swipe through hundreds of profiles in a day, maybe even more if one is super ambitious. And so I think that's the big difference. And also one meets people completely outside of any social context. So at the bar, maybe at least like the person has a friend or you can kind of contextualize them at least a little bit. But on dating apps, oftentimes you have absolutely nothing to go on. It's also one of the biggest perks of dating apps. You meet people you would have otherwise never met. Yeah, I was going to say, so in person, I mean, you can't fake being six foot three if you're five foot eight. And if you're balding, you're balding. And if, you know, that type of thing, if you're 30 pounds overweight, you can't come in and say you're a triathlete. That gets figured out pretty quickly. But on the dating app, you're saying if you do that at scale and the misinformation triggers certain things, that's the problem you're trying to solve. Yes. And in a way, I am less concerned about things that will become obvious when people meet for the first time. So, for example, they don't like somebody's height, well, they will see that in person before more harm is really done. But when we're looking at the big ticket items, and oftentimes that is marital status, but there are others as well, that's really where things get very, very problematic because we don't have a national marriage database. It's not that easy to figure out sometimes if someone's married or they might not be married, but they're in a serious relationship. So there are other things like that that we could look at. This is really how my work started. And then it just grew and grew and grew and also went outside of the the legal issues. So I'm working on a book called Strangers on the Internet that also delves into a lot of the cultural issues. And I also a couple months ago, together with psychologist Michelle Lang, started a podcast called Strangers on the Internet, where we delve into some of these issues and also talk to guests about their experiences. And you would not believe some of the stories that people have told me. I mean, people think the Tinder swindler that they saw is this weird thing that almost never happens. And yes, the scale of that story, so for those who haven't followed it, this involved an individual that bamboozled women out of millions of dollars. So yes, perhaps that's not something that happens very often, but some form of fraud has happened to many, many, many people who have used dating apps. And this idea that, well, you must just not be that smart or you must have been too desperate or all of this other victim blaming that people do is really unfair. While there are things that people can do to protect themselves, and I, again, along with my co-host Michelle Lang, like, well, we talk about some of these things on Strangers on the Internet and elsewhere At the same time, we can't forget that the predators are the ones at fault and need to stop doing what they're doing. Well, and it's preying on people's want to believe. And oftentimes people are willing to forgive a lot of the different red flags that are out there when in in a position to protect themselves. Dating app to me seems like 
it can mean a lot of different things. I mean, certainly like Tinder and Bumble and a bunch of others that, frankly, I don't really even know that much about. But how do you sort of define a dating app? I could almost envision LinkedIn being a dating app in some ways. How do you get your arms around what to focus on? I'm laughing that you mentioned LinkedIn because there is a um, matchmaking agency that a couple months ago tried contacting my husband to recruit him, I guess, as a candidate for, for, for their <laughs> services. So you, you are more right than you think about how oh, even LinkedIn can be a dating app. Certainly, there's a lot of overlap between all sorts of social media and apps that are specifically designed for that. And now we have services like Facebook that will have different uh, segments of their services that are geared toward either dating. So Facebook dating is intentionally separated from the rest of Facebook. So you can make sure your friends don't see you're on there, et cetera. So there's really a lot of overlap between these and I don't look at them strictly, but I have mainly focused on what you're thinking about when you say Tinder, Hinge, Bumble, et cetera. One of the interesting things I want to mention about these apps is people often will try to pick a dating app where others are interested in the same thing that they themselves are interested in. So Hinge, for example, markets itself as the relationship app. So you might think, great, if you're a woman looking for a monogamous relationship with a man, why don't you just get on Hinge instead of on Tinder? Well, guess what the predators are doing? If they realize a lot of the women are on Hinge, they're going to go on Hinge also. Usually, in fact, they're on lots of different apps at the same time. And you will see certain individuals that will have different dating profiles, even within the same app, but definitely across different apps because they're trying to cast a wide net. I also want to say a word about red flags that you brought up. Like, why do people disregard red flags? Well, certainly some people are not that informed, although there I would say, do we not care about uninformed people? Do we think that they should just be victims and we shouldn't protect them? No, sometimes they're the ones the most in need of protection, whether that's social or legal or whatnot. But when it comes to disregarding red flags, we have, and this is the stereotype, but unfortunately, it's also the truth. We do have an imbalance in the dating pool that gets worse and worse for women as they get older, where a lot of men are seeking women that are young and look a certain way, et cetera, and contact women that are farther and farther apart from their own age. And so you have a rational incentive sometimes to think that a red flag maybe is only an orange flag and maybe you shouldn't drop the person right away. And that's another thing that I haven't really seen that many other people talk about, that looking out for red flags is a double-edged sword and that it's not always as simple as, oh, well, you should just drop this person at the first sign of suspicion. So let's talk a little bit about the difficult or bad incentives that the apps send out. And largely being a guy, I'm probably right in the crosshairs of whatever my brain talks about or thinks about. It's sort of like, oh, these apps attack the male psyche and create these difficult incentives. How do you think about that? The first thing to consider is that when it comes to dating apps, most of them don't want you to find a monogamous relationship and leave the apps. They want as many people to be on the apps for as long as possible and keep playing, right? And get just enough gratification from using these apps that they stay on there or worst case, like take a break and then come back. So the business model in the first place is not geared toward what a lot of people actually are looking for. The other issue is now people can just 
choose to swipe through a whole bunch of people, meet up with a whole bunch of people. If let's say somebody is just looking to hook up, well, if they can't find someone that will hook up right away, they're just going to move on to the next person. Or if anyone wants something a little bit better, like, oh, I don't know, being treated with politeness and courtesy and not experiencing consistent behaviors and all of that kind of stuff, why bother with that person? Just move on to the next person and the next person and the next person. There is that gamification aspect that is completely intentional, like the swiping and the gratification from seeing like, ah, ha ha, somebody thinks I'm hot. I just matched with someone again. And some people, in fact, that is how they use the dating apps. They never even talk to someone or never even go on a date. It's been literally just a, a hot or not service to them. But even beyond that, this idea of I'm going to bag as many conquests as possible is still alive and well. And I was just having a conversation with someone on this issue of, I don't think it's as simple as saying like, well, women just need to go on a collective hookup strike. And if women just stop hooking up, then everything will be better. First of all, good luck (laughs) getting over that collective action problem. Even assuming we could do that, what really, really worries me right now, this is something I'm thinking about a lot right now, is are there quite a few heterosexual men who would rather not date at all, meaning sort of get lost in a world of porn and video games and just solitary pursuits like that, that would rather do that than invest in a relationship and then put in the work. I'm wondering whether we're dealing with some kind of crisis of either extreme entitlement or whether there's an element of laziness or what exactly is happening to the culture that is moving us in this direction. The world of internet slash social media slash let's call it the devolution into sort of incel territory that you describe, to me, that seems like it's a tangible thing that we can point to as existing and growing. How to fix that, it's unclear, especially as the different barometers of success are challenged and more difficult. And so the bromides people used to lean on back in the day are being challenged and a lot of the roles, et cetera, are up for debate. It'll be interesting to see how that manifests itself going forward. As far as I know, I was the first legal scholar to use the word incel in a law review article, at least as far as it is ago. And it wasn't that long ago. Like the term had been around culturally by the time I wrote my Tinder Lies article. And that's sort of interesting in its own right, that like as far as the legal scholars are concerned, this is really just starting to get interest and traction and it's becoming more interesting from a political perspective. But I also think we need to be careful not to romanticize the past. When we think about how many people in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and later to this day were stuck in bad marriages, like when we think about the stereotype of the emotionally absent husband or father who's just staring at his newspaper instead of at his wife, just watching football with his buddies instead of being at home. And now a lot of women say, you know what, I'm just not going to put up with that anymore. I can make my own money. Worst case, I'm going to raise kids by myself. Yeah, like they don't need that in their lives. But I feel like there's some patching up that needs to happen here culturally as to, okay, what is actually reasonable to expect in a relationship? Like what do we actually want from each other? And one more thing I would say is this. I think a lot of men who fall into that incel or quasi-incel territory, they really don't know what they're missing. Like they don't know what they're missing about what a good relationship can be like and that some of the skills that they don't currently have can be learned. That's something that's a bit of a tragedy in its own right. So as we think about the, let's call it the injection of accountability 
as people engage in these dating apps, et cetera, uh, accountability leads to costs slash damages slash effects when you lie or misrepresent online, et cetera. Maybe take us through some of that. You're a professor of law, and so you're looking at this through that prism as well. What are you finding? Unfortunately, right now, there's not a lot of accountability to be had. I think we're dealing with a larger crisis of accountability in our society. And we have seen some of that during the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, where people don't want to have some people, of course, not all people, some people don't want to be accountable to other people, literally don't care if they kill off or disable other people. This is what we're talking about. I mean, it's like whether somebody is going to go home and cry because you pretended like you were going to have a relationship with the person. It pales in comparison with some of the larger issues we're dealing with. But again, it fits into them. So how do we add accountability? For one, the apps themselves certainly could do a better job in terms of weeding out offenders and kicking people out. And one tricky thing that has happened is sometimes it can swing in too far in the other direction, where if there's a complaint about someone, well, they're just going to kick the person out. And some women have experienced that also, and they often don't even know, like, what did I do? And so we've seen, and this has been covered a little bit in the press, we've seen some men complain about women just because the woman didn't want to sleep with them or whatever. So they just make something up to get her kicked off the app. So we need better mechanisms on the part of the app operators. And that's going to take money because somebody is going to have to actually look through these complaints and decide what is real and what isn't. And then we have the legal level. Like I said, one thing I've proposed is these small claims court mechanisms where even if the amount somebody could recover is small, at the very least, sort of these serial creditors would probably get sued over and over and over again until they have a real financial incentive to stop their bad behaviors. So I think social fabrics and social help can be of assistance here. So there are some groups that have sprung up, for example, where women share information about men that they meet online. Some of these groups have grown rather large. One of them is more than 50,000 people. And they have their own problems. But this is kind of what people are resorting to because there is nothing else out there to hold people accountable and at the very least to warn other people from what's out there. You bring up an interesting point about the small claims court system and using civil measures to either address damages or otherwise punish offenders either frequently or even maybe just not frequent, but sort of gross violations. Do you worry about an explosion of lawsuits on that front if not properly modulated? I could envision a $1,000 to $10,000 compensation system to redress bad behavior. Suddenly that metastasizes into something that maybe wasn't intended to fix earlier on. I think we will get a lot of lawsuits because it happens a lot. So we're going to get a lot of legitimate lawsuits, first of all. Are we going to get some illegitimate ones? Absolutely. But we also have legal measures against some of these things, right? If somebody truly engages in defamation or truly gives a false testimony before a court, we have mechanisms against all that. And I think we should absolutely use them. So At the end of the day, it is certainly a matter of cost and benefit. But right now, there is a huge cost that is borne in significant part by women. So it's not equally distributed. And look, 
While not all victims are women, most of the perpetrators of the really serious offenses are men. And there are certain things you asked me earlier about criminal law. There are certain things where I do think we should make greater use of criminal law as well. And that's where we're talking about things that essentially fall into sexual assault. So in a lot of states, for example, you still can't pursue someone criminally that easily for stealthing. The act where a man will remove his condom without consent during sex. And that's something that's been taking activists a lot of work to really get out there, get put on the table. What we've seen historically is courts saying, oh, well, I don't want to get involved in intimate matters. I don't want to get involved in he said, she said, et cetera, et cetera. Well, that was the excuse when we didn't really want to deal with rape and sexual assault and sexual harassment and all of these things also. These are all intimate matters. And when you look at family law, for example, the courts are deeply involved in intimate matters all the time. You look at divorces, courts go through text messages that people send each other when it comes to custody issues. So it is hard not to feel like, no, it's not really, at this point, it's not really an absolute ban on getting involved in intimate matters. It's really about the fact that you, the courts, and you, the legislators, refuse to recognize the harms. And you might think, oh, well, if it happens just once that somebody, I don't know, had sex with someone under false pretenses and they wouldn't have done it otherwise. Think about what it means when somebody deals not just with one predator, but with many. And again, that can easily happen because there are so many of them out there. So people think, well, I'm a good guy. How many bad guys could possibly be out there? Hey, I'm happy to tell you about it. Let me give you just one example. Columbia Journalism Investigations did a study and did essentially a survey of women on dating apps. One out of three of these women said that they had experienced sexual assault. One out of three. That is a tremendously large number. And you can say, oh, maybe it's actually a little bit more, a little bit less. It doesn't matter. It's a lot of people. It is way more people than we should tolerate as a society. And again, you can look at the larger picture. We have thousands and thousands and dozens of thousands of unprocessed rape kits in this country, whether you're talking about rape that happened related to dating apps or not. So we as a society and as the people who elect the individuals who are in our government have apparently decided that this is not a priority and that's completely unacceptable. I'm sort of thinking this through in terms of uh, sort of a big concept that almost screams for regulation in many ways. And in the financial services world, we regulate. You can't really have anonymous accounts anymore. Ultimate beneficial owners have to be disclosed in order to access the financial services world. Is that sort of a scheme appropriate for the dating app world? Is anonymity something that should be done away with? And then I guess if someone were to regulate the dating app ecosystem, who would you think would be a good candidate to do it? Well, it gets tricky here also because some individuals don't want to hand over their data for good reason, because we have seen a lot of data breaches when it comes to these companies. So that is definitely a concern. Now, there is more that we can do in that area. Certainly having regulators like the FTC and others involved is a possibility. So this is a consumer protection issue on some level. So that's one thing that we could think about. But certainly requiring the dating apps to require that information 
but also to store that information safely, perhaps is one of the things that we need to think about at this point. Because again, the scale of the harm is too large. And the fact that you can just sign up with an email address or just sign up with the Facebook account is too easy. One of the things that I often get asked is, why can't the free market fix this? What if like a company said, well, we're going to be the safe one and we're going to require a lot of information. Why not go that route? I want to give you an example, an anecdote for why that's difficult. So there was an individual that actually tried to start a dating app that would be safer for women. He was absolutely horrified about all the awful stories out there. And he built an app called Gatsby that sought to really provide the kinds of protections that a lot of women would like to see. He actually managed to get 80,000 users signed up for that app, which is great. It's really, really hard to get people signed up for these kinds of services where you kind of can't start that service until you have a lot of people on it. Nobody wants to be on a dating app that has five people. Now, he has these 80,000 people. Well, what was the problem? More than 90% of the users, I think even more than 95% of the users of that app were women. So a lot of men don't have the incentive to sign up for that app. They're perfectly satisfied with what they're getting on the Tinders of the world, et cetera. Another thing that we can do and that we could legally require is that one of the things that's happened in Australia as a result of pressure by the media is that Bumble changed its system such that if somebody unmatches you, their information doesn't immediately disappear on your end. And that is something that became important in rape cases where the rapist would unmatch immediately and then the other person, if they hadn't saved any screenshots or whatnot, would be out of luck. So those are things that we could think about, we could think about regulating. Unfortunately, things move pretty slowly when it comes to Congress and these kinds of technological measures. And you're also going to have predators that are going to find ways around a lot of these things. So I think regulation is important. Sensible regulation is important. We can't make it so expensive to use these services that it essentially keeps a vast percentage of the population out of them, right? So that's the counter here that we always have to consider. But at the same time, it seems like thinking about things like a notice and takedown system like we have in copyright, it would be potentially another measure. So, okay, you didn't know there's a rapist on your app. But when somebody tells you that there is and gives you evidence for that, maybe you should have an obligation to remove the person. So those are all things I would consider. This is a fascinating topic. And I actually think we ought to have a follow up on this in a future episode because we're at such an early inning stage of what's going on here as things come up, cases, incidents, et cetera. I'd love to have you on again on this front. On a final question here, have you interacted with the dating app companies yet? Have they got an opinion on your research? I imagine they probably have a strong one and probably not too positive. What does that interaction look like? I have interacted with some. So I will say that I have done a bit of consulting for a new dating app. That's one thing. So where I really try to bring some of my knowledge about safety measures to the fore. And when it comes to the larger dating apps, I have interacted with someone who's in charge of safety issues at Match Group, and I learned some interesting things that way. But my sense so far has been when I've kind of offered my services or to meet up with someone from that app or or talk about that, 
I have not really gotten a lot of interest so far. I will also tell you that I am currently banned from Tinder. I believe that is because I was open about the fact that I do research on these apps. Now, I never collected anyone's user data or anything like that. But the sheer fact that I mentioned research, what I suspect, because I don't know, because they don't give you a reason, was enough to get me kicked off. So it's the kind of thing where I don't think they necessarily, some of them necessarily love what I'm doing. I think some of them might be more open-minded than others about having conversations. And I also think they might want to think about this in greater depth because I am not their big enemy. I'm actually somebody who sees a lot of benefits to these apps also. And look, I found my current husband on a dating app, so I know they can produce very nice results also, but it just has to be done in a way that is sensible. And I think they're going to see a lot more backlash. We've seen a series of articles by ProPublica that were very, very interesting going through how little time some of these apps spend weeding out sexual offenders, et cetera. So they've got a lot of bad press coming in their future if they don't address these issues. And they're they're doing some stuff like Tinder partnered with Garbo, which is a a background check company. And that's pretty recent. So it's going to be interesting to see what comes of that. And you get like a couple of free checks, right? But just the stories the apps are telling about, you know, oh, it's too onerous for us to collect information or or all of that kind of stuff. I think some of that is going to really fall apart like a house of cards. And I do believe they should be having conversations with academics and others that are serious about this. And I definitely, if any of them are listening, I definitely welcome having those conversations. It just takes one bad lawsuit to blow up the franchise, that's for sure. Irina, this is really fascinating, and I'm going to have you back on when events warrant, which will probably be some some lawsuit or some incident that needs attention. How do listeners find you? Yes, yeah, so, well, thank you so much, uh, Fraser. And the listeners can go to Strangers on Internet, so without the thus, just strangersoninternet.com. They can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Swipe Strangers. So that's a good way to get in touch. My Twitter account is at Irina underscore Manta. And we always welcome interactions with users of dating apps and listeners. There's also Strangers on the Internet Facebook group. So we've got a good community going. And yeah, well, you know, we love what you've been doing with your podcast. We aspire to some of the same. Oh, I appreciate it. I'm going to have all of that information in the show notes for people, too. But Irina, thank you very much for being on and uh, continued success. Thank you so much. And, you know, if people also want to just look up Strangers on the Internet on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, that's another good way to find us. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Fraser. Likewise. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Fraser Rice is an employee of Next Capital Management, LLC. This podcast is not investment, legal, or tax advice, nor does it reflect the opinions of Next Capital Management. Any opinions represented in the show are Fraser's individually and not an endorsement of the guests.